Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. On our last episode, we began our deep dive into each of the three themes that BlackRock sees shaping the year ahead. Today, we're talking about policy. In 2020, we saw unprecedented coordination between central banks and governments to help the global economy stay afloat. This year, we expect further policy action, but the market impact is likely to be different. So today, we're going to talk about the new nominal with Jean Bovin, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. We'll talk about how a resurgence in COVID cases will impact the restart of the global economy, what action we expect from policymakers, and how investors should navigate the year ahead. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thank you. So a year ago, you had a very prescient conversation with me, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about 2021. In this mini-series about the year ahead, we've spoken to Scott Teal, Tony Despirito, and Tom Donilon. And a key part of their outlook is that they see global growth restarting, particularly as the vaccine begins to be distributed worldwide. And so we're pro-risk as a firm in our investment views, but we've recently seen a new strain of the virus emerge. And that's led to a spike in hospitalizations and, of course, further lockdowns. So how do you think this new strain is going to impact the restart? So the new variant and the new strain, as you mentioned, is obviously a risk and is, I think, contributing to longer lockdown and restrictions being maintained in place. And so will affect and is affecting the near-term track of activity. But in our view, ultimately, and I think that's really what the markets have been absorbing or embracing, is that it's really about the vaccine and how it's going to be rolled out and how rapidly it's going to be rolled out. And as long as the vaccine is rolled out according to plan and is effective against these new variants, new strains, which so far the evidence we have suggests that they will be, especially in terms of preventing severe versions of the disease as well as hospitalization, as long as these conditions are met, then the near-term evolution of the virus is not as important. In fact, I mean, it's something we would advise to look through in terms of markets, of course. And I think as a result, makes us really focus on what the restart would look like. What we are envisioning now for the next stage or the next few weeks is once we're in a world where hospitalization is under control in key parts of the world, we will start to see an acceleration in the restart. It's pretty incredible that in some parts of the world right now, we are on track to be way above 25% of the population being vaccinated by April. So that would be the case in the UK. We're seeing that as well in the US and some other countries are ramping up. So that's in line with getting close to the point where hospitalizations are under control and the time where you would start to see the acceleration and the restart. And I think the dynamic of the politics will change. We'll see a relaxation of restrictions contributing to the acceleration. And then all the way to the point where once not only hospitalization is under control, but the broader contamination is also very much under control and declining, then we're going to be in, and this is a 2021 story, I think, in many parts of the world, we're going to be in a world where we're going to see a very significant acceleration, which will have nothing to do with a typical recovery because we're not in a normal business cycle and pent up demand is pretty real. There's a lot of suppressed demand, both for consumption goods, durable and services. And I think that's going to be a pretty powerful force when we get to the second part of this year. And what does that pent-up demand look like? Can you just explain that? So, I mean, we can all buy anything and everything online today. And then there, of course, has also been tremendous job loss and economic hardship that continues, even as we saw in the most recent job numbers. So what gives you so much confidence in the pent-up demand? What is it? What will it look like? A couple of things here. I guess one place to start is that we've seen 
savings accumulation by a large fraction on average by the population, certainly in the U.S., but that's true everywhere. So this is, again, a different dynamic than in a typical business cycle. We have a balance sheet of consumers, individuals that have improved during the pandemic as opposed to deteriorate as it would be the case like in 2008 or 2009. So there's hardship, there's health hardship, and there's job loss and so on. But it's in the context still where overall there has been an accumulation of savings and stronger balance sheet. The second part I would say is that why is there pent-up demand is because even though we are able to buy online and do some activities, there are plenty of activities that I don't know about you, but I'm certainly very eager to re-engage with, certainly on the service side of things. And those would be something you would expect like, you know, a big boost initially. When we talk about services, it's important to realize it's not like you can start to pack up and you cannot go twice to dinner at the same time. You typically don't go see the same concerts twice. So there's a limit to how much pent up or, you know, compensation of past losses that can come in the future. But there's still the ability to go more often to restaurant for a while, to have more trips and engage in more frequent activities. So that's what the pent up demand would look like, I think. And it's going to be driven by this accumulation of savings overall. And people will then also start to regain employment and so on, and that adding to this dynamic. You're right. There's no shortage of things I think we'd all like to be doing if we could these days. So I guess this all sounds quite different from the global financial crisis. How would you then compare the shock that's been created by COVID-19 and the challenges of last year to the global financial crisis? So one thing we've tried to put forward early on in 2020, and I think, you know, we started to express ourselves or communicate around this in March of last year, is the fact that, you know, the usual business cycle playbook doesn't apply. This is more akin to a natural disaster situation than it is to a business cycle. Even the language we use typically doesn't really convey the right precision of reality. Like what we went through, in our view, is not a recession. It was a deliberate coordinated stoppage of the activity and the global economy, which is very different than a recession. And what we're going through right now is a restart. It's not a recovery because artificially activity was held back, not because of more organic evolution of the cycle, but like an exogenous kind of natural disaster type phenomenon. And that has a big implication, which is a point we tried to make early on in the crisis, which is that even though it's tempting to draw a line to 2008 and 2009, the nature of the shock is very different. And ultimately, what will matter for markets is the cumulative impact over time, not only like in the second quarter of last year, but it's the cumulative impact on output loss over 2020, 2021, 22, and so on. And once you look at the cumulative impact over time of what this shock is likely to represent, in our view, and still to this day, it is a fraction of what the global financial crisis presented. And the reason is that. This shock was very intense and concentrated in 2020. And the decline in activity we've seen is like never seen really before in a quarter. It's concentrated, but the restart is real. And we don't have a key phenomenon of 2008, which is propagation over time. 2008, 2009 set in motion a deleveraging. Deleveraging means the fact that corporation and individual needed to rebuild their balance sheet to a healthier state. And that can only happen over time. And that's a persistent headwind. So in 2008, we learned about this phenomenon that was set in motion, would take many years. And this time around, as I said, the balance sheets are in a healthy position, even healthier than any point you would expect at this point in a recession recovery. And we don't have, as a result, this propagation. 
it sounds like some of that is about the conditions, as you said, that we had going into it. Some of it's about the nature of what caused the shock and the recession. But to what extent do you attribute some of that to the policy response as well, which was quite different than it was in the global financial crisis? So the policy response, we want to think of it a bit differently than it typically is framed or discussed in the context of a recession. Our view from the beginning has been that the role of policy here was not to stimulate the economy out of the recession, but it was really to provide a bridge through that period. And the difference, I think, is key because if you're in a normal recession, you're trying to boost activity through policy. There was no point to boost activity in 2020. I mean, we were trying to stop it. You know, the point of policy was not to try to activate or stimulate it, but it was really to try to make sure that we are not creating permanent scars and damage while we're stopping the economy. And that means making sure that we provide funds and liquidity where it's needed to avoid default and maintain balance sheet as LT as possible through that period. And so I would say the policy is not that crucial for the restart dynamic. The restart dynamic is a natural consequence of the virus being under control, but the policy was absolutely crucial to avoid permanent damage by providing a bridge. And I think the, if you bring that down to the market reactions and the fact that so many people point to a disconnect between the economy and the fact that markets are now higher than they were before the pandemic came to life, and they are in fact much higher, some people see that as a disconnect. And we would argue that there's not really a disconnect because the shock is over time not as big as the global financial crisis. We have visibility on the restart and policy is avoiding the permanent scar and damage, which I think is part of the reason why markets are where they are now. And so you've called this a phenomenon, the policy revolution, not exactly what you're talking about right now, but basically the joint fiscal and monetary policy response was something that you anticipated in advance of the pandemic, agnostic and separate from the pandemic, but just an expectation that that kind of collaboration, if you will, would be part of an approach to any future recession that certainly played out in 2020. And as you suggested, that response helped the economy start to recover and limit as you put the long-term damage and the scarring. Just to underscore one point you just made here, which is the role of policy was to bridge, not to stimulate in 2020, but that still required a huge intervention of policy. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to underestimate the fact that this bridging doesn't mean it's less. The response was bigger than the global financial crisis. And as you say, we've seen that as nothing short than a policy revolution. Something that we thought that the next big shock will require in many ways, but it is still surprising to see how quickly things that were seen as unthinkable a few years ago and even in 2019 have been now deployed. And the unthinkable, I think, has to do a lot with the more explicit coordination between central banks and fiscal authorities and an aspect of policy that is about going more direct, trying to put funds and money more directly in the hands of entities that need it. And a lot of what we've seen in 2020 is reflecting that aspect. The other key thing is that we've seen an unprecedented increase in debt in 2020. I mean, in a peacetime era or period, this is kind of never seen before, both the level, but also the increase in discretionary spending that we've seen in places like the UK and the US. What is also interesting, and I think this is all a basis to inform how we think about 2021, but what is also interesting is that despite this unprecedented increase in debt to record level, in many ways, the markets, the policymakers, academics, and taxpayers have never been so relaxed about debt as we currently are. You know, there's no real constituency being very noisy about the need for consolidating budget deficits or austerity. 
And so I think this is notable because in 2008, 9, 10, and 11, it was the opposite. After the response that was smaller than currently, there was a very quick reversal to concerns around big debt and a large debt and the need to control the deficit. So that is notable, I think. So what actions do you expect policymakers to take this year, especially now that we have a democratic sweep of the U.S. government and different leadership politically in the United States? What do you think is going to happen this year? When we think about 2021, key points to make is that first, there's a big, big fiscal package being negotiated in the U.S. I think no matter the scenarios, we're talking about a very sizable fiscal stimulus that is coming on the back of what I said, an unprecedented 2020 response already. So that is one part of the picture for 2021. Markets are very relaxed about this debt and all of that, it hinges on the rate environment staying low and for a long time, like currently markets are anticipating. In a world like this, you know, it turns out that this debt is at record level, but it's cheaper to finance that debt now than it was to finance the debt in the 1990s, which was about half the level it is now. So this is why we're so relaxed. It also implies that rates staying low will be key to this environment being sustained. And that brings me then to the Fed, where big questions in 2021, because I think the rate piece is very important for being relaxed about the debt level. It's very important about asset price valuation. There's a strong conviction that the Fed will be maintaining a low rate environment for a long time. And that's our baseline in our view and aligned with what they've communicated. We think it's going to be very difficult for them to engage in tapering quickly. And so we think there'll be a tendency to postpone that discussion way into 2021. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, later in the second half in particular, when the restart is real, we think we're going to see more inflation as well. The calculation for the Fed will become trickier because on the one hand, the necessity to maintain a low-rate environment, given everything I've just said before about markets valuation, sustainability of the debt, and so on, will be powerful force. But on the other hand, there's going to be a disconnect with what's going to happen on the ground with the activity restart and inflation starting to appear and how they navigate that, I think will create some more noise, potential miscommunication. And I think ultimately they'll reaffirm a low-rate environment. But on the way there, we might have a bit more volatility, given how important the low-rate environment is to justify a lot of what we're seeing, both on the debt side, but also on the valuation of assets. So you just talked about why the low-rate environment is important, why it will likely persist. Seeing a low-rate environment go on for even this long wasn't really conscionable to many people a decade ago. And you're saying it's going to be even longer. A couple questions for you on that. One, what does an investor do about that? How should they think differently? And then two, what do you think are some of the lessons about fundamental economic principles? Like are elements of economics kind of broken and have rules been rewritten? Yeah, so these are two great questions, big questions by themselves. But let me offer a couple of comments on both. So in terms of what investors do about this, there's a couple of key implications, I think. So this lower environment, not only low, right, but it's close to the lower bound of what rates, in our view, can be or can go. It means that the role of fixed income and government debt in portfolios, I think, will be more challenged over the next few years. Bond yields will find it hard to go much lower than they are now. One of the big keys to allocate to fixed income in portfolios is because of their balanced properties that helps to insulate your portfolio against equity drawdowns. 
That role, I think, is going to be more questionable going forward. Moreover, even though rates will be lower and we take big forces keeping them low, they'll likely be on the way up from here. And there's also going to be more inflation. All of this, I think, means less expected returns, more challenge expected returns, certainly for fixed income, but also less of a balanced role. So that's why we tend to favor from a strategic longer term perspective in under allocation or underway to a fixed income in portfolios. So that's one of the implications. I think another key implication, however, that is more for now in the near term and core to our view is the fact that we think that the central banks and the Fed in particular will be responding to inflation in a much more muted way than what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years. And that is important because that means that even though inflation is coming, will challenge the role of bonds and portfolio is going to be, however, much more constructive to equities because we will see some inflation without their usual magnitude of response from yield. So it's going to be much more muted. And that's what we call the new nominal team, which is an environment where inflation is going up, yields are not going up as much, and that is constructive for risk asset and for equities in particular. So I think that's kind of the two key takeaways from this environment. Both One is more longer term, and I think the new nominal is more of a near-term boost or support to markets. On your second question, which is what has changed more fundamentally in the way to think about the macroeconomic world, I think I would go straight to this, what I just said, which is the intellectual paradigm around how we think about debt. It's a sea change, what we've seen. We had back in early 2010s, this old debate about how do we reduce debt globally after the global financial crisis. There was discussion about putting at the G20 level, even targets for debt to GDP ratios that countries should work towards to get to healthier balance sheets. And now we're in 2021, debt is higher. We've gone through another crisis and we're collectively and intellectually in this paradigm a lot more relaxed about debt. And you'll see now a lot of work from Olivier Blanchard and Larry Summers making the strong case for why there's a different world, different paradigm, a lot more fiscal space, and emphasizing the fact that we're in a world where interest rates are below the growth rate of the economy. So the economy is growing faster than the rates that we pay on debt. And that kind of wedge between the two is justifying much more fiscal space than what we've seen before. There's an element of this, which is that it has a bit of a reflectivity to it. Why was the nature of the discussion in academia and elsewhere different in 2010? It was because rates were expected to go back to their historical normal. And then the whole paradigm was kind of reflective of this view. And now, why do we have a different discussion? It's because rates are not expected to go back to historical average. So it all really depends on whether this assumption is true or not. Well, I guess, although past experience is no indication of future performance, it seems like you're certainly not alone in suggesting that it's true. And I'm curious, I mean, one feature possibly an outcome of low rates has been the asset prices have gone up across asset classes. Do you think that that's going to continue to be the case? Should we expect that to continue to be the case? And is then just sort of talking about a quote correction sort of irrelevant at this point? So there's a lot of discussions on valuations being stretched right at this juncture. I've mentioned a bit earlier the disconnect that people are pointing to between markets and the reality of the economies that haven't really restarted yet and we're working from home and so on. But I would say this is another instance where history is not necessarily a good guide to frame these valuations. It is the case that you take standard metrics and you compare that to what we've seen historically, they all look to be high. And, you know, you'll see that when I have one idea, I stick to it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, historically, the rate environment was not expected to be this low and for this long. And that's key to think about valuations. So once you take into account 
or control for the fact that we have a different rate environment, the compensation that investors are getting for getting equity exposures over and beyond what the interest rate or the risk-free rate would suggest is not abnormal. It's pretty much in line with fair compensation we've seen historically. So it's not clear that these valuations are screaming red or appear to be stretched. That said, it's predicated on rates staying low. And if that changes, then that would be a massive change in the landscape that would question all of this thesis. And the second point I would make is that this restart is very visible, which means that markets have been able to focus on what's to come and to price it in. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes and we actually see it, it would be difficult to justify that this is another reason for market to have another big leg up on the back of this, right? So, I mean, the reason why we're kind of calm and positive about market now is because we expect a restart to come. That's why people are looking through when we haven't seen markets going down much on the back of bad news. But when we actually see that happening, a lot of it will already be in the price. And I don't think as a result of all this, one feature of 2008 is that we saw in the aftermath a decade-long bull market following it. In this case, given the nature of the shock, you know, the positive is that the shock is not as big overall, but it also means that I don't think we can just extrapolate a decade-long bull market on the back of this. You know, for U.S. equities, we are in the low single digits returns expectations for U.S. equities on a five-year basis, for instance. So not overvalued, but at the same time, it's a moderate return environment I think we should be expecting over the next five years. So it sounds like we should expect things to look a little different, as you suggested, in terms of rates, in terms of return expectations. What about policy? So how do you think future policy action will be changed for the years ahead based on what we learned in 2020? The big questions for policymakers now is a bit how to put the genie back in the bottle. (laughs) You know, after many years where we've been hearing, we need to consolidate, we need to restrict our spending, we cannot finance infrastructure because of concerns around debt. Suddenly in 2020, we were able to do massive spending, increase the debt very, very materially. And we're on the other side of this now. And, you know, the world hasn't collapsed. Markets are going up. And so for many, one conclusion that seems to be drawn from this is that why not do more? Why do we have to stop spending? And so I think the big challenge, that's the Jenny that I'm referring to. I think putting a stop on that spending going forward or putting the guardrails around this, the ability of the central banks to start to remove some of this bridging stimulus will not be an easy task. And it won't be an easy task because it's going to be a political discussion And politicians will have to make the case for why we need to restrict fiscal policy and monetary policy. There's going to be a disconnect in people's mind, given that it appeared to have been so easy to deploy that fiscal policy in 2020 without much consequences. So I think that explanation will be tricky. And to me, that's the big question for policymakers over the next five years. Well, Jean, it certainly will be interesting to watch all this unfold. Thank you for sharing your perspective and vision of the future. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. All the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. On our next episode of The Bid, we'll finish this mini-series on our global outlooks with our outlook for sustainability for the year. As a reminder, email us at thebid at blackrock.com with ideas for future topics or any feedback. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. 
The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.